second night of our series, Marriage and Our Maker. And if you don't have notes, there's some notes back here. Grab them. You'll want those today because we have a lot of ground to cover. And also, as questions come up during tonight's lecture, there's a number on the screen that I want you to have at your disposal. You can send those at any time. And in just a few moments, Sonia and I are going to field those questions, answer them as best we can. Last week, we answered the question, what is a marriage? Today, I want to answer another fundamental question. What is a husband? What is a husband? And if you would give me just a little latitude, let me just make, as a pastor, some broad observations of our world right now. When I look out on the American landscape today, I see two mistakes that men typically make. I see two kinds of men. First of all, I see emasculated man, and also I see machismo man. And both of those are a mistake. Let me explain the two. First of all, I see emasculated man. I see weak, apathetic, wimpy men who are afraid to lead. They're complacent. Sometimes they're lazy. They are too weak to lead themselves, to be disciplined themselves. So how in the world could they ever lead a family or lead a wife? And this goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. Emasculated, wimpy men don't please God. That's not what God has created us to do. That's not the kind of men that God has created us to be. Now, maybe some of that wimpiness is brought on by the culture that we live in. We, we live in a world where men are actively encouraged to be more like women. And God is not pleased in that. And, and sometimes, I, I, I understand this, sometimes when men try to lead or they fail at leadership, they're immediately branded with that terrifying label, toxic masculinity. And so some men are emasculated because of that, and, and they're just not leading. Okay, then there's the other extreme, and this is not better. There's another kind of man in America I'll call this man emasculated or a machismo man. And a machismo man orders his family about. Machismo man, if he ever gets married, he treats his wife with dis disrespect. He sees masculinity as just these superficial displays of manliness, shooting guns, you know, riding motorcycles, watching football. He maybe. This machismo man drinks too much, eats to excess, he selfishly pursues his own hobbies, and he rules his family with an iron fist. If he has a family, he rules them with an iron fist. In fact, it's worse than that. There's a movement in our world right now. I think it's a massive reaction to feminism in our country, in our world, and, and you might call this red pill masculinity or Andrew Tate masculinity. And this is the kind of thinking where some men think of marriage as entrapment. So they don't get married. They don't like marriage. And they think of women as those who are to be used and discarded as needed. Children are better off avoided because they complicate life. And there's truth in that. But that, my friends, that kind of thinking, even as it relates to masculinity, is, is way off target as it relates to God's intent for man, marriage, and masculinity. God is not pleased with machismo man. He's not pleased with emasculated man. Today, I want to talk about something between those extremes, something better, something biblical, something God wants, and that is true, biblical masculinity the kind of masculinity where men are called to die to themselves for the benefit of others, that's true masculinity. A kind of biblical masculinity where a man is entrusted with a wife and entrusted with kids and he, he nurtures them and cares for them rightly. That's real manhood. The fundamental question that I want to ask 
beyond, you know, what is manhood, what is masculinity, I'm trying to get real basic here because we need to go back to basics. It's this, this is the question, what is a husband? And, And how do we answer that biblically? Well, I mean, we need to state the obvious. A husband is the male of the species, first of all, who takes it upon himself to covenant in marriage with a woman, a female, just to be clear. And he, he, he loves her. He cares for her. He nurtures her. Let me say it this way. Okay, here's my definition for what is a husband. A husband is a man who enters into a covenant commitment of marriage with a woman, and he commits to lovingly lead, nurture, and care for her and their offspring. Let me say that again as a definition. What is a husband? A husband is a man, a biological male, who enters into the covenant, covenantal commitment of marriage with a woman, and he commits to lovingly lead, nurture, and care for her and their offspring. It might help to think of the verb. Husband is not just a noun, it's also a verb. To husband means to manage something or to steward something. We talk about those who husband the ground. They're called farmers and they bring forth the crops. We talk about animal husbandry, which is the caring of a farm and the caring of animals to produce economic returns. So as husbands, we, we husband our marriages. We husband our families even. We care for them, we nurture them, and we bring out the best in them. And to that you might say, great, Pastor Tony, now I know what a husband is, but I need to know what a husband does. What what is a husband supposed to do? Okay, I want to help you with that. I want to direct you to three scriptures that speak specifically. You know, I, I love it when Paul gives us commands, and Paul gives husbands commands. Do this. And that's helpful. Men need that. Give us some orders. Well, we're going to look at some orders. And and I don't want to talk just in generalities tonight. I don't want to talk in just theological abstractions. Men need specifics too. So we're going to get specific. So turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to look at the three key passages in the New Testament where God gives husband's commands. And Ephesians 5 has some of the most concentrated teaching on marriage. It's so key. I could spend a lot of time here, but I'm not going to. I want to overview the big theme, and that's primarily found in verse 25. And in that verse, as Paul is giving out these instructions, he's already set the paradigm for Christ is our Savior. Now in light of Christ, do these things. As those who follow Christ. And one of the things that he says that we need to do, specifically to husbands, is he says this in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you have your notes, go ahead and write this down as the first point for tonight. Here's what God has called us to do, men. Here's what a husband does. A husband loves his wife sacrificially as Christ does for his church. Now this statement is ultimately a statement about leadership or more appropriately what we might call headship. The husband is called to be the head of his wife. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. We'll talk more about that next week. For the husband is the head of his wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Then there's verse 25, husbands, therefore, in light of all this, in light of this paradigm that's set up, that's even represented in the cosmic marriage between Christ and the church, husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself, died to himself, gave himself up for her. Real leadership, real masculinity is about self-sacrifice for the good of those being led. And that, that carries over into other areas as well. Moses in the Old Testament was a good leader. 
And he told the Lord at one point, my life for theirs. God was so angry at the Israelites. You might say, well, which time? Well, one of the times. And, and Moses, before the Lord said, kill me, not them. Take my life for them. David, King David, said similarly in 2 Samuel, my life for theirs. Kill me, not them. Paul says in Romans, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's good leadership. Jesus says to God the Father, my life for theirs. Kill me, not them. Let me die to myself for the benefit of another. Jesus laid down his life for the church. That's the way it always is in leadership. A good general lays down his life for his soldiers. A good coach lays down his life for his players. You elevate the needs of your followers above your own. That's what a husband is called to do. That's what a father is called to do. It's loving leadership. Jesus said it this way in, in Matthew, and this was a, a paradigm shift for his disciples. This is one of those times the disciples are like, what? What's he talking about? Jesus said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I heard this great story about Joe Montana once, the quarterback, the 49ers, way back when, right? And supposedly whenever his linemen would make a mistake, hiking the ball or running a play, running backs, whatever, Joe would just immediately take responsibility for it, no matter what happened. And he, he would just fall on his sword. So the coaches would, you know, start chewing out the lineman or chewing out his running back. And Joe Montana would say, no, 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 coach, that was my fault. The, you know, and so the coach, I mean, what's the coach supposed to do? He chews out Joe Montana. And even though the coach even knows, well, it's not really his fault, but I'm, I'm going to make an example of him. Now, what do you think that did for Joe Montana's linemen in the game? They would, they would, you know, run through a brick wall for him by the time it was game time. And that's the nature of leadership. That's, that's the nature of self-sacrifice on behalf of others. Man, that's what your leadership should look like in the home. And if you do that right... I'm going to get into the world of, of theory and X plus Y equals Z. This doesn't always equate, but I think it does a lot of the time. If you do that right, I think wives really don't struggle that much with verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. If, in other words, if you do Ephesians 5.25 well, your wife is going to be okay with Ephesians 5.22. Now, maybe that's not always the case, but... I've been pastoring for a while, and I've seen it. A wife, now look, we'll talk about submission next week, so bring your questions. But there, I do think there's a myth, a misunderstanding, a, a false belief that men, that, that women struggle all the time with submission. Men... Women struggle with submission like men struggle with submission. You know, what man wants to pay his taxes? You know, I just love paying taxes. What man loves submitting to his government? This is Texas. Nobody likes submitting to the government. But we're called to do that. And a wife, look, a wife, she doesn't want to submit to an angry husband. She doesn't want to submit to a lazy husband. But if you have a man that and she can sense inside of him, that man loves me. He's going to die to himself for me. I don't think it's as hard for most women as we talk about to really follow the leadership of that kind of man. In a lot of ways, it's like, it's like following Jesus. That's the goal anyway. I heard John Piper say once that if a husband really understood the magnitude of what's conveyed here in Ephesians 5.25, you wouldn't have to give him any application at all. You wouldn't have to illustrate it. 
If, if that just sank deeply into his soul, Ephesians 5.25, love my wife as Christ loves the church. If he really grasped the power of that, then it would transform everything. And he, w- he wouldn't need anything more than that in order to be a good husband. I'm not sure I agree with Piper because men need help sometimes, like some handles, like how do I do this? But, but I, I do, I do want to grip your heart with how basic and how beautiful and how essential this is, the husbanding. You be like Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, there's two other passages I want to look at. Let's flip over just a few pages to Colossians chapter 3. And in verse 19, we see Paul again at the end of an epistle giving instructions. At the beginning, it's all about Christ and what Christ has done for us. And then it's like, he just unloads all the imperatives at the end of a, a letter. Do this, do this, do this, do this, don't do this. And here it is again, just to show us that, you know, it wasn't some isolated issue in, in Ephesus. Here's another church. Paul says something awfully similar to Ephesians 5. He says in verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord, in the Lord. And then here it is, verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So there's a little bit of nuance there. Paul brings in a new statement saying, don't be harsh with them. Literally, don't be embittered against them. Don't allow bitterness to fester in your marriage. So here are some key words in marriage, men. There's, you need forgiveness. You need repentance. You need kindness and gentleness. And here's the key word that I want to extract from this passage. There needs to be tenderness. So God has called us to love our wives sacrificially. God has also called us to love our wives tenderly. Husband loves his wife tenderly. And I know how it is, man. I I know how it is. You go off to work in that dog-eat-dog world, in that dog-eat-dog work environment, and at the office place or or, or wherever your work environment is, there's, there's spitting and there's cussing and there's cursing and there's yelling. And you get chewed out by your boss and then you got to go chew somebody else out. And, and you come home and you're just like... And you, you got to make a, a serious attempt as you step into the threshold of your home to just cool down. I'm not going into my house in boss mode. I'm not going in to address my enemies or my coworkers or those people that are chewing me up or I'm chewing them out. Let's, this is my wife. This is my family. And you walk in with tenderness. And you you, you got to turn, those of you all who are the boss and not just the employee, you got to turn boss mode off. And, and you, you speak and you interact with tenderness. How'd your day go today, sweetie? How, how are the kids doing? How, are they still alive? Is everything okay? <laughs> and you talk differently to your wives than you do to your coworkers. You even say you talk differently your, to your wives than you do your own children. When, you know, when Alistair was young... I pretty frequently said, quit crying, stop whining, man up, rub some dirt on it and get back out there. And, and why do I do that? Maybe I did that too much when he was little. I'm trying to prepare him, my son, for that dog-eat-dog world that he's about to get into. But, but I don't, you don't talk to your wife that way. Instead, you speak with tenderness. You, you, you ask how she's doing. You ask if you can help. You, you help put the kids to bed. You, you, you help do the dishes. You compliment her. You speak and you, you interact with tenderness. And that's what 
this is what real masculinity looks like. That's what I get so annoyed about by the red pill group. Do they really understand what to be to be a real man is that you have a family, you have a wife, and you care for them and you nurture them. That's what God looks down on and says, that pleases me. That's what I created that man to do. And that's what you promised to do when you made your vows. And you said, I will love, cherish, and take care of this woman as long as we both shall live. Nobody remembers their vows. Nobody's paying attention when I'm making them do their vows. That's why you should circle back with it. But you promised it. Thirdly, here's what God has to say to us men. A husband loves his wife sacrificially, tenderly, also honorably. A husband loves his wife honorably. This business about husbands loving their wives, that's not just a Pauline concept. It's also found in the Apostle Peter's writings in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. And Peter, with different words, in his own way, in his Petrine versus Pauline way, he says this, 1 Peter 3, verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, let me explain that, men, weaker vessel, that language. Women are not weaker intellectually. Women are not weaker spiritually. In many ways, I think women are stronger than men spiritually. Just That's my observation after, you know, 15, 20 years of pastoring. But physically, women are weaker. That's why men pretending to be women and playing sports as women is ridiculous. Not only is it ridiculous, it's dangerous. Women are weaker physically, but I, let me add to that. I think also emotionally they're more sensitive, and that's not a bad thing. That's part of their wiring. It's part of their maternal instinct. That's how God made them. Women, this is what I've found to be true in Sonia and I's relationship, women are more susceptible to fatigue. Women are more susceptible to depression. 75% of depression medication is prescribed to women. Women are more empathetic than men. That's not bad. You want that with your children. They're more nurturing than men. There's a greater level of what I would call preciousness or even fragility when it comes to women and the way that God created them. And part of that involves emotions. Part of that involves psychology. Part of that involves physiology. Now, don't fool yourself, just for the record, so women are the weaker vessel. Men are weak too, okay? It's not like men are really, really strong and women are really, really weak. No, it's like women are weak, we're all weak, and men, women are a little weaker. The Bible describes men and women both in 2 Corinthians as jars of clay. That's not a compliment. That means we're fragile. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Greater is he that is in you than, than we ourselves, these jars of clay. So, and also, when men run amok, when men do wrong by their wives, what they do is that they get abusive. They get physically abusive. They get verbally abusive. That's not a new thing. That's, that's an old thing. And that's why... And by the way, that's sinful. That's, that's unmanly. And it's unbiblical. Because Peter says here, live with your wife in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel. Proverbs 11, verse 17. I read this this last Sunday. And I love when the Holy Spirit brings together like the Sunday message and the Wednesday message. I wasn't even expecting this. But Solomon said, a man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. A man who is unkind to his wife is taking an axe to the base of his own tree. All you're doing is hurting yourself. 
So when, men, when your wife is hurting on an issue, don't, you don't say, get over it, man up. You don't say, you're too sensitive. No, you don't want your wife to be more like a man. You want to honor her in the way that God has created her. And you might say, I need a little motivation for that, Pastor Tony. Okay, look at the end of verse 7. Why should we do that? Because they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that, men, your prayers may not be hindered. That's terrifying. That's pretty close to God saying, if you don't treat your wives rightly, men, you're going to have to answer to me for that. I don't want my prayers to be hindered. I, so I'm, I'm going to do my darndest to love my wife, to honor her, to, to treat her with respect as a co-heir in Christ Jesus, as a fellow image bearer who, yes, is a weak vessel. There's that famous scene in My Fair Lady. If you all ever seen that music? Where Professor Higgins is dancing around and he's singing, why can't a woman be more like a man? Y'all ever seen that? When I was younger, I would watch that and I would laugh. And I would think to myself, yeah, that's funny. Why can't a woman be more like a man? Then I got a little older. And as I watched it, I, I still laugh because it's funny. But I, I don't laugh because I sympathize with Professor because what he's saying is stupid. He, he's being presented even in the play, in the movie, as an idiot. Why would you want a woman to be more like a man? I don't want that. Who wants to be married to another man? For the record, I love that my wife is different from me. I love that she has gifts that I don't have, that we, we have this thing called synergy, that we can leverage the gifts respective one to another for the benefit of both of us. It's all that stuff we talked about last in terms of God's intent for marriage all along. And so seeing her emotional sensitivity, seeing her difference as valuable and good, that's part of what we do, men. We honor her as a weaker vessel, but equal heir in the grace of life. Y'all with me? Wives, y'all with me? So those are your commands, husbands. It's pretty simple. I guess the New Testament's like, let's keep it simple for the men. This is what you do. Here's a few commands. But you might say, thank you, Pastor Tony. I get all that, that what we're supposed to do conceptually. But I need help with the how-tos. Can you, can you walk down the ladder of abstraction for me and give more specifics about how a man loves his wife as Christ does the church? Yes, I want to help you do that. And, and in fact, I'm going to give you 10 things in the next 10 minutes before we take questions. So right fast. And I'm calling these 10 ways that a man can love his wife as Christ loves the church. And just so you know, the things that I'm about to say, these 10 things, none of these are complicated. If you talk to any counselor, any marriage counselor, premarital or otherwise, they'll, they'll say, yep, 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 yep. These are not complicated. But, but the doing of them takes a commitment and some follow through. And, and, just by way of framing, I'm going to frame it this way. I'm going to frame it as thesis, antithesis. Do this, don't do this. Here we go. And men, if you're, look, if y'all are doing one or two or three of these things, you need to quit. Number one, be tender with your wife. Be tender with her. Don't be gruff towards her. You don't yell at your wife. That is a primitive form of communication. She is not your dog. You don't lay hands on her. You don't try to intimidate her with your physical strength. That is ungodly. That is unbiblical. That is sinful. You don't call her names. 
You don't treat her like a soldier in the army. You don't treat her like like a worker in your assembly line. That is shameful behavior. That is unmanly. That is unmasculine to do that. You speak tenderly about her. Chivalry is not dead in modern day America. It's just gone to seed. Raise it up. When you get married, just just think back to when you were dating, those of y'all who are married. Why did your wife marry you? Probably she didn't marry you because you were an amazing leader and she just had to get in your wake. Maybe that was the case, but probably not. She married you, she fell in love with you because you, you, you touched her and you spoke tenderly to her and you opened the door for her and you cared for her. And she said to herself, I could use about 60 years of this. And that's what we're called to. We're called to 60 years of chivalry and honor and love and tenderness. Now, I'm a realist, so I know that that whole process of courting, when you're dating somebody and, and the butterflies you get with that and the eros that comes with that, that's not going to last. And to be honest, I'm, it's kind of a good thing that that goes away eventually. But what shouldn't go away is the tenderness, is the kindness, is the love, is the the chivalry. That should be a 60-year phenomenon. Write this down, number two. Also, you esteem her. How do you love your wife as Christ loves the church? You esteem her. You don't ever demean her. To esteem somebody means to treat them as if they were valuable. It means you regard them in a high and a lofty way. You honor them. So Dennis DeHaan, he tells a story about this, this man who opened the door for his wife. And another woman, another woman came along and saw this. And she was annoyed by it. And she said something to the effect of, I think she's capable of opening her own door for herself. And this husband said, I don't open the door for her because she's incapable. I open the door for her because she's honored. And that's, that's how we do, men. With, with class, we treat our wives with class, with esteem, with dignity, with chivalry. One of the best things that you can do, men, for your wives is listen to her. And be a good listener. We're really bad at this sometimes, men. And one of the things that you have to do in that, when you're in that mode, is, is you gotta, you got to turn the problem-solving instinct off. She has chosen you, of all the people in the world, to hear her deepest struggles, hurts, feelings. That is a privilege. That is an honor. So... Turn your problem-solving mode off and listen. Write this down as number three. Praise her publicly. Don't ever run her down. There are public actions and then there are public words. It's impossible. It's maybe nearly impossible would be the better way to say it. It's nearly impossible to respect someone privately who you run down publicly. You You just... start to build inside of you that negativity. And Proverbs 31, I mean, we, we look at that sometimes as this honorable woman, and it is, but one of the things about her is that the husband praises his wife and says, many women have done excellently, you surpassed them all. The husband is praising her. So there's something to that, men. Speak of her publicly in honorable ways and praise her. Don't be that guy going to work talking about his sorry wife. The old ball and chain was at it again. That is wicked. Wives, can I talk to you all for just a moment? You got to give your husband something to work with, okay? To praise you publicly. Don't make him lie when he's praising you publicly. I heard a pastor tell a congregation once, 
Don't make me lie at your funeral. Give me something to work with. (laughs) Write this down, number four. Appreciate her and don't take her for granted. That's a way to love her as Christ loves the church. Tell her, thank you for cooking dinner. Thank you for taking care of our kids. Thank you for sacrificing in order to take care of me and for taking good care of me. I'm glad Alistair's not here. He's in the other room. So I'll tell you this story. This last week, um, Sonia made us dinner, and Alistair was, he was, he kind of approaches meals sometimes like he's, he's a celebrity chef giving feedback. So he was kind of, you know, picky about this or that, and I said, son, let me give you some advice. When a woman makes dinner for you, if you want her to do it again, you better compliment her. And, and you're going to want that, men. You're going you're gonna to want from time to time a response. And if you're, you're filling her cup and filling her cup and filling her cup, it's a lot easier for her to respond. But if you're a drain, that, that's exhausting for a woman. Number five, help her. Don't be excessively demanding. Help with the dishes. Help her put the kids to bed. Help her with the laundry. Be servant-minded in that way. A servant-minded leader sometimes actually has to serve. It doesn't mean you're a servile leader. You're still a leader. The best example of that in the New Testament is Jesus. John 13, Jesus washed his disciples' feet, and he did that work of a servant. Now, when you think about that, was there any doubt at any moment in that room with the disciples as to who the leader was? I mean, Jesus was still the leader that they, they loved and followed, and, and yet there he was washing their feet. So, help her. Write this down, number six. Woo her. Don't let romantic love disappear altogether. I'm going to teach an entire message on this in a few weeks, so I don't want to shoot all of my bullets now. I'll save them for later. But I will say this, don't just woo to marry, marry to woo for the rest of your life. Tommy, or Tony Evans said that once, we don't woo to marry, we marry to woo a woman for the rest of our lives. So a lot of men approach dating like they're hunting for a choice elk. And they, they go and they work and they stalk and they find that elk and then when they They get the elk, they're done. And then they just mount it over their fireplace. That's not how it's supposed to be. You continue to woo. You you can still go on dates after you get married. Did you know that? And then what's really fun, so I've heard, is that when the kids leave, you go on more dates. Write this down as number seven. This is important, men. Work and support your family. Don't shirk your responsibility as a breadwinner. That's hard on a wife. And I know we, we spent a season in our life uh, in Chicago when I was going through seminary where Sonia was the primary breadwinner. And I, I don't know if we could have gotten through seminary without her doing that. And it was hard. It was hard. And thankfully, it was temporary. It was something that we... You know, now the, the ideal position to be in, and I try to share this with premarital couples when they get married, is you want to be in a position where a woman has the, has the choice to work or not work. You do what you want, you know, and y'all can figure that out. It's not like you have to work or else we're going to fall under. Or you, this is even worse. You have to work because I'm not willing to work. That doesn't honor the Lord. And by the way, ladies... This is unfair, so let me just tell you, and some of y'all who are getting married or wanting to get married someday, I'll just let you in on a little secret. God is unfair in the way that he gives men earning potential. Did y'all hear me on that? And, and I'm, I'm kind of resentful about it myself. Some men have the capability to make lots of money. Some men don't, and God is unfair in the way that he dishes that out. 
And so, now, wives, it's right for you, I believe, to, to expect your husband to work and to provide. But you can't complain that he doesn't make enough money if he doesn't have the skills or the education or whatever to make more money. You need to be content. And a lot of marriages get into a lot of trouble. We'll talk about this later in this series because they try to spend way more than they make. If you want trouble in your marriage, do that. Spend more money than you're bringing in. Number eight, husbands, give your wife a sense of security in the marriage. Don't let there be even a hint of unfaithfulness. Women rightfully get angry when their husbands ogle other women. Women rightfully get angry when their husbands flirt with other women. Don't do that. And women especially get angry when their husbands are hooked on pornography. And if that's an issue, get that figured. Get that sorted out. And for those of you who are single, let me just say this. I heard a pastor say once, this was a beautiful statement. He said, if you are single, love your wife now and meet her later. In other words, live your life right now in such a way that your fiancé, that your girlfriend, that your wife-to-be when you meet her someday will be thankful for the way that you have prepared to meet her. Don't waste your singleness blowing all your money on stupid stuff, hooked on pornography, chasing and sleeping with all kinds of women. You spend that time now Preparing. Number nine. Encourage her to pursue her interests. She doesn't feel trapped. Sonia, she always wants me to emphasize this whenever we do premarital counseling. Because, and, and she's right, and, and I, there's something to this. When a woman and a man get together and they get married... The woman gives up more than the man does. She does. And, and, and I know that's hard. There's, there's some sacrifices that are built into the marriage thing. You know, my wife, just for an example, she, when we got married, we got married in Longview, Texas. And we moved 1,000 miles away to Chicago, Illinois to go to seminary. So she left, she left her friends. She left her church. She left her job. She left some aspects of her career where she was excelling. All because, I mean, she was committed to this, this calling upon my life to go to another part of the world and get training to be a pastor. And because of that, you know, and then, and then kids come, and it's, you can call it unfair if you want to, but women give up more for the raising of kids than men do. Sometimes men don't even know, like, where their kids go to school, you know? It's like, I don't know, ask the mom. So... Now, one of the ways that you can recompense her for that is, is to help her to pursue hobbies and interests. And you know, for my wife, that means power tools and you know, a, a bandsaw because she likes to make furniture. For some women, that might be you know, one night a week for, for volleyball recreationally or traveling internationally or, or doing something that you know, is of interest to her, you can put some money into that within reason, husbands, and love her that way. Remember what Christ did for you when you came to Christ. Christ took you and brought the best out of you. And he brought you to a place that you couldn't be on your own. And, and he loved you. And remember the word husband. Remember the verb. It means you're, you're a steward. You're a caretaker. You're husbanding your wife like a farmer cares for the field and brings out the produce. Think of it that way. Care for your wife. Encourage her. Help her to flourish. And then finally, and Sonia and I emphasize this like crazy when we do premarital, lead your wife spiritually 
Don't be an adverse influence on her walk with God. Lead her. No wife wants to drag her lazy husband to church on Sunday morning because he'd rather watch football. And you be the one that gets your family to Sunday. You be the one that puts your kids in bed and studies the Bible with them and prays with them. You be the one that leads in Bible study. You be the one that, that leads in, in Bible knowledge and, and training of the children. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're a pastor or a plumber or an engineer. It doesn't matter if you're a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker. My dad's a software engineer. The, the men that I grew up in, the church that I grew up with in, there was one pastor and all the other men had different trades, different professions. And for the most part, all of those men led their families. And they led them in spiritual ways and spiritual categories. That's what we're called to do. Men, also lead your wives in... Conflict resolution. We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. You be the one to apologize first. You be the one to, to rectify a conflict. I don't ever want people to think about my wife. Boy, she would have become something great if she hadn't married him. I, I want my wife I want my wife to have to pick up the pace to keep up with me in terms of my spiritual commitments and spiritual disciplines. And vice versa. By the way, Ephesians 5, we didn't get into this, but later in that passage, Paul says, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church. That nourishing is not talking about physical nourishing, it's spiritual nourishing. You're, you, if I could be super practical, you pray with your wife. You, you read scripture with her. You, you talk about Sunday after Sunday. After the message. You ask her about her devotions. You, you, you care for her. You nourish her. You, you spiritually lead her. So, ten things. So no man should leave here tonight and say, oh, I, I don't know what that really means. Do those ten things. And some of you, if you're overwhelmed by this, theologically and practically, good. God has called men to do hard things. Do some hard things. And, and if you're really discouraged and you think to yourself, boy, I, I, can't, I can't do that. You know, it's too much. I'm going to fail. Let, let me just let you in on a secret. Yes, you will fail. So there you go. The only perfect groom in this world is Jesus. And let me, let me, let me tell you something, men. You ain't Jesus. And thankfully for your wife, she doesn't need you to be her Messiah. She's already got a Messiah. What she does need, and I think it's right for her to expect this, she needs you to be teachable. She needs you to be mature and maturing as a man of God. So do those things, men. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Okay, we're going to transition. Let's take some questions. Sonia's going to come up and... Thanks for listening so intensively. Okay, good. Yeah, when Sonia and I were dating, uh, she would go around to all these other older couples in our church, and she would be, she had this specific question she would ask, how do you make a marriage last? You know, and how, how have you guys been so successful in your marriage? And I remember when we were engaged, that was really intimidating to me because I was like, am I not doing enough? You know, what's wrong? But now I see the wisdom of what she was doing. She was 
she was learning, she was extrapolating from couples who have been there wisdom. And I, I think for married couples who have been married five years or more, being available, uh, you know, a word of encouragement is rarely, I think, within the church, you know, shucked or turned away from if you uh, were to see a couple, a newlywed or a young married in the church to go to encourage them to, uh, if you see something positive that they're doing, reinforce that. And then I would say also for those of you who are in small groups with, you know, hopefully there's enough diversity in your small group where that kind of thing is happening and you'll have your moments. You'll have those strategic moments to speak and to testify and to encourage those uh, who are younger marrieds. I think there's a myth out there that churches always need to gravitate towards their own like. So older couples with older couples, younger couples with younger couples, marrieds with single, marrieds with marrieds and singles with singles. I, I think that's boring, personally. I like heterogeneity, not homogeneity in the church. You want differences, and we can leverage those differences for the benefit of those in the church. Good. Next question. This is a long one, so pay attention. My wife loves and trusts Jesus alone for her salvation, but lately she has been attending a Roman Catholic church because it is familiar to her. I have tried showing her that attending a church that teaches Christ plus works is dangerous, but she has asked me to stop mentioning this, but I see her as being in spiritual danger. Should I stop warning her? No, I don't think so. That's kind of an interesting combination of both uh, marriage and leadership, but also, you know, there's there's a sense in which there's an unequal yoked situation here. Uh, maybe you can speak to that with the situation involving your parents, but yeah, you you caution, you encourage, you exhort, you don't nag, you don't demand. You don't throw a fit. Um, I think, boy, let me add to that too. I think you pray like crazy. Pray that uh, her, this could very easily be swapped to if it was a husband. You pray that your spouse, their eyes would be open to the the false doctrines that are being purported. And, and, and I think too, you know, one of the great treasures of somebody who's not unequally yoked is that you get to go to church together. It's actually a wonderful thing. You go to church together, you're, you learn together, you encourage one another. So I, th- I think advocating for that and uh, trying to persuade positively towards the benefit of that should be part of your, your approach as well. Okay. Question three, could you clarify help not to be exceedingly demanding. Do you mean it's okay for husbands to be a little demanding? <laughs> well, leadership is going to require expectations. So um, I think, especially for those who are in the dating stage, like you should map that out. What's the expectation of the husband? Post-marriage, what's the expectation of the wife? What's the expectation of husband and wife once kids come along? And have that, uh, <laughs> you know, have that discussed so it's not like you're trying to figure things out or you get hit with a curveball uh, once those things come about. Okay, but in the, in the midst of the situation, um, yeah, I think for a wife to... Boy, I don't want to say demand. For a wife to expect her husband to to work and to provide is is right. Similarly, for a husband to expect a wife to care and to take care of kids, and if there's a commitment to you know being a housewife in terms of finances put towards that, I, I think that's right. But I, I'd be careful about using the word demand or, or speaking in that way or um, 
definitely be careful about exceed, being exceedingly demanding. What do you think, Sonia? Yeah, that word is, has negative connotations. But uh, yeah, as a leader, you do have to set some expectations, I guess, or have those conversations when things are not going well or you see your wife hurting herself with her choices. Um, you have to call her to account, so to speak, you know, gently, but you can't shy away from that. So, I don't know, we had situations in in our marriage where I really appreciated Tony sitting me down and saying, Sonia, you know, you're spending too much time looking at the world news or being depressed because of it, and that's not good for your spiritual health, and I've seen you derail, but your spiritual zeal is not where it needs to be. So, um, I'm glad that he kind of called me to account with that or just showed me, helped me see that and put a stop to it. And he said, <laughs> you know, so yeah, when we were first married, um, I think you were a little more, what's one of these? A little more gruff, maybe. <laughs> and like, he couldn't understand why I was different, maybe in some ways. And uh, he'd be like, Sanya, you know, why aren't you doing this? Or you should be doing that. And you know, just trying to like lead with, with strength or with, uh, what am I force. with force. And I did not respond very well to that. And so uh, he has definitely changed a lot in that area. So I don't know. Is it okay to be a little demanding? I think it is. You know, I should demand of you to be faithful to me. And if I see something that is not right, then I should call you up on that. And I think the same with you. So I don't know. Okay, for a newly married couple, what are helpful ways to pray and read with your wife? What encouragement do you have in order to move past the awkwardness? Yeah, good. Mm -hmm. So we've never been great at that together. <laughs> so Sonia's mm -hmm. uh, reading habits and her spiritual disciplines are different than mine. I'm very regimented and we would, times when we would try to do devotions together, Sonia would ask questions or she would read through something and, and stop and want to kind of meditate on it. And I'd be like, now let's keep moving, you know, that we got to get through this part because my reading plan is this. And if we don't finish this, then I can't get to the next part. So we would kind of drive each other crazy early on doing that. And we learn to just kind of encourage each other in those times versus trying to do it together. Now, I have some friends that do devotions with their wives, and they are ridiculously compatible at doing it, and they have a great time together, and I'm jealous. <laughs> what probably did the best for us in terms of devotions together and, and, and good discipline is when Alistair was young, we would read the Bible together and we would pray together. Mm -hmm. And that was something that we did well together and we involved him. And typically it would be 15 minutes. If it was any longer than that, then we would, it would, it would be hard to form that habit. So we would usually pray, sing a song, and then uh, read a section out of his children's Bible. When he was a little older, we would use the Bible and and that was great. That was good discipline. It was a good way to invest in him and also be edified together. Yeah, we, we couldn't really do studies together or devotionals because we are different, differently wired. Um, and I would feel like I'm not like really communing with God if I'm just going like very systematically through everything. And, you know, he's a teacher too, so... There's always like color commentary and all this stuff. <laughs> anyway, and then uh, he would get frustrated with me because, you know, I was kind of chasing rabbits maybe. But, uh, but we were good at praying together. And so, so that's okay. I mean, you just need to grow in the Lord, follow Him. And if you can do some things together, that's wonderful. Like you can, there are a bunch of uh, devotionals that my friends would do with their spouses and, and enjoyed it. They would do it every uh, every night before they go to bed or in the mornings, whatever works with your schedule. But we tried them and uh, ended up just like, okay, you do your thing, I'll do my thing, and then we'll talk about how the Lord's working in our lives and pray together. <laughs> One of the things that I alluded to in my lecture and I want to circle back with is we really hammer with premarital couples like 
Don't make your husband, don't make your wife into your Messiah. Don't, because you, whenever you get married and it's biblical, you start to cling to each other and you get really tight and that's good. But 1 Corinthians 7 is real. Like you, you don't have as much thought for the Lord because your thoughts are starting to be monopolized with your wife or with your husband. And so it's, it's good to cultivate, even in your marriage relationship, separate relationships with the Lord. So yeah. I know I'm kind of speaking against what I've already said about the one flesh union, y'all coming together, but I want Sonia to have her own relationship with Jesus that is strong and powerful, and she's depending upon him as her Messiah, as am I, and that's healthy too. And then for those opportunities where we do come together, go to church together serve together or whatever, it, it makes it uh, even that much more potent the time that we are able to, mm -hmm. to minister together. Yeah. And when we first got married, um, that happened for me, the shift from uh, closeness, extreme closeness with the Lord, and now I was so distracted, and it seems like I was uh, too dependent on Tony for my fulfillment and uh, happiness, and you know, I became kind of clingy. And so we had a conversation about that, and I was able to see this is not healthy, this is not right. So um, I went back to cultivating my, my relationship with the Lord on my own, and I think that is so important because we're not guaranteed another day with our spouse, and yet with the Lord, He is always with us. And uh, it's good for us to be strong spiritually and not be so dependent on the other person. If something happens to them, we're going to be a basket case so I think it's something that God does ask us to, you know, surrender to Him. Yeah, good. Last question. This question may be a week early, but our child is out of the house and there are no others on the way, save a miracle. So what are my wife's priorities in the marriage? Well, it sounds like a job well done. You, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I... Procreation is an important part of the marriage equation. It's not the only thing, but it's definitely a part of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. But procreation and the raising of children is not meant to be a, a lifelong or a marriage-long thing. There's 18 to, what, 21 years, and then it's like, out you go. It's time to start life on your own. Um, and I guess priorities all along the way, even with kids, involve mutual edification, love, you know, husband loving as Christ loves the church, wife submitting, that continues. That's pre-kid marriage, post-kid marriage. That's, uh, you have, I would think, I don't know, we got some empty nesters in the room, but the empty nest stage of life is glorious in the sense that You've got discretionary hours now that you can dedicate towards church-related things, towards hobbies, towards even reinvigorating your own marital relationship, and, and that's good. I mean, that's one of the natural life cycles of marriage, and I think that's a positive thing. So I would leverage that. Um, you know, most of our elders, uh, except for me and Forrest, are empty nesters, so I'd the demand upon an elder is such that it's hard for young men or for men with kids to really dedicate the time that's needed to be an elder um, because you got a full-time job, you got kids, you got family, and then you also have the church that you're caring for. So once that stage of life is initiated, boy, that's, that's a great opportunity to do church-related things, to travel, to enjoy each other, to go on dates again, to uh, to really, um, yeah, make up for lost time. Although it's, you know, I, I don't want to say that negatively because at the end of our lives, those of us who have had kids, I mean, you'll say, I would think, that the most important or one of the most important things of your life involved raising children. And it's meant to be that way. And um yeah, and Lord willing, at the end of your life, they'll be taking care of you. So <laughs> we've already laid the groundwork for that with our zone. <laughs>
Yeah, I guess the only thing I can add is to maybe have the conversation, you know, husband and wife, go on a date, talk about, okay, what do we do now? What's next? You know, what's next? What kind of trouble can we get into together? <laughs> <laughs> maybe a mission trip we could do, or maybe the wife wants to go to work, or um, you, you still have a child or children, even though they're grown, so maybe how can we best support our son and his wife or just our daughter and in her singleness or whatever how can we encourage them and you know prepare to be grandparents maybe yep and let me qualify a little bit what i said you never really stop being a parent not really so and you never stop suffering good and bad on behalf of your children it's just part of the part of the the reality of parenting. So pray for us. Close okay. us out. Yeah. Our beautiful Savior, our Lord, thank you for what you've done for us, for showing us an example of Christ's love being the perfect embodiment of the um, our divine maker and uh, showing us, Lord, what it means to love people sacrificially so lord i pray for all of us in the room today and those who are watching lord help us to grow in the likeness of christ help us to be kind and generous and patient to exude the fruit of the spirit and holiness to just resemble you lord to the watching world and uh, be a picture, Lord, of what you wanted marriage to be. So help us to grow, Lord. We are all sinners. We all have blind spots and those habits that are hard to break. So God, help us. Give us your eyes. Give us new eyes to see uh, how we treat our spouses and uh, the, those areas that we have um, yeah, become blind to. So, Lord, help us to change. We need your Holy Spirit's power. Help us to honor uh, one another and to just have, I just pray for good marriages for every person represented here. And help us as well, Lord, to, to speak wisely with others and encourage others, Lord, to be faithful to one another and um, to treat each other, Lord, the way that you want us to, to be treated. So. We love you. We thank you for this time together. And we pray that you continue growing us, Lord, in maturity and in the likeness of Christ. We need your help, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.